Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Hello, everyone. Today is Monday. It's the 21st of December, 2015. Let's go ahead and get our contact info out of the way, and then we'll start with the show. I do have a voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731, 206-745-2731. If you would prefer to send an email or record an MP3 and send that in, the email address is firearmscafe at gmail.com. All one word, firearmscafe at gmail.com. Over on the website, I have buttons for Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can check those out if you like. If you would like to uh, support the show financially, I do have a PayPal donation button and also an Amazon search box. All right, so that is going to be it. Let's go ahead and start the show. Today's show maybe a little bit shorter. You know, it's a funny thing in the in the firearms community, a lot of us are kind of like-minded individuals, but there's still a lot of differences. Uh there's a lot of differences as far as how people feel politically, how people feel philosophically, especially in regards to religion in regards to what the proper course of action or what an ethical course of action uh, when dealing with people that you think are trying to to harm you, that type of thing. But most of us all have a pretty similar mindset, especially when it comes to firearms, when it comes to things like self-defense, and like I said, when it comes to things like if, if uh, people are trying to harm you. And a lot of times we try and figure out what would I do in situation A, what would I do in situation B, and Recently, I was listening to the Michael Bain podcast, which is Downrange Radio, and he was talking about the attacks that happened in Paris and the attacks that happened in California and was talking about why the why of it doesn't matter and kind of getting back to that uh, great minds think alike deal. When I heard that, it, it kind of sent up some red flags for me. And I just recently got caught up on some of Chaz's shows over at the Road Gunner podcast. And he'd put out a show, oh, maybe about five or six days, I guess, from the time of this recording earlier. I don't remember the name of it. I think it was like, why the most dangerous question or something like that. But anyway, it was quite a good show. And a lot of the things that he stated, a lot of things that he talked about were things that I'd agreed with. Uh, So I'd invite you to go over there and uh, give that show a listen. I think it's called Half, maybe Half Cast or Half Show or something like that. I can't, like I said, I can't remember off the top of my head. But a lot of the things, uh, like I said, that he talked about were things that I wanted to talk about. Things like when when you're asking a question, why? Like, So if somebody is trying to, uh, to harm you, it doesn't do you any good to say, why is this happening? It doesn't do you any good to say, why did they pick me? It doesn't do you any good to say, 
why are they acting this way? Why are they behaving in a violent manner? None of those things help you. It doesn't help you to say, this can't be happening to me. It can't be happening to me. Because then you sort of get stuck in that loop and it's going to slow down any reaction time that you have. When I worked in detention, part of that was that you knew that that you could be attacked. You also knew that they, uh, that the, the people that were in there, you had a lot of kids that were uh, from rival gangs and from this, that, and the other thing. You tried to keep them separated, but sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes things would spark off. And nine times out of ten, they were going to attack each other. They weren't going to attack you as the staff member. But it could happen. And if, if that did happen, if it was an attack on you, you can't at that moment think, why is this happening? You know, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Why, why did they do this? They weren't mad before. Why are they mad now? What you do is you react. And in part, I think that's what he was talking about. He being Michael Bain was talking about when he was saying the why of it doesn't matter. But he was also talking about kind of in a bigger, more, more uh, global sense, I guess you could say of the, the why these extreme people, uh, the extreme Muslims or the extreme Islamists, um, whatever you want to call them, you know, it's not important to, to, to understand why they're doing that. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that you do need to understand why they're doing it. It doesn't mean that you justify it. It doesn't mean that you empathize with them. But it helps you understand the problem that you're having. It helps you understand how to avoid that problem in the future. Now, unfortunately, you and I are not the government. And you and I can't, we really don't have any say in what they're going to do, what what actions our government are going to take, especially on the federal level. We're so far away from them that, that it just doesn't matter uh, at this point. You know, I think you might have, and I've talked about this for a long time, if you want to affect some type of political change, I think about the only thing you might be able to do would be have would be to have some effect on some local stuff. If you could, you know, get the right people in in your state legislature, if you get the right people in on the city council. But even then, it's a long shot. They become beholden to people that have a lot more money and a lot more power than you and I as the average person. And I used to think a long time ago that a lot of that stuff mattered. And maybe, maybe on, in some regards on a local, a local level it does, but I'm kind of even, I'm kind of losing sort of my faith in that. Uh, but anyway, this isn't about necessarily my uh, faith or, or loss of faith in, in the political system that we are currently in. But a lot of times I think people are, are sort of afraid to ask that question, why? Because I think sometimes they're afraid of the, of the answer that they're going to get. If if they ask that question, if they ask the question why, and if they do it objectively, if they do it using uh, reason, and if they do it using logic, and if they can divorce emotion from it, if they can step away from any preconceived notion that they have, or if they don't only look at the evidence that supports the end result that they want. If we look at the actions that our government has taken over the past 30, 40 years, you you sort of see a pattern of nation building. You see a pattern of, of interference. 
And some people, you know, have, have sort of bought into the idea that, you know, we need to go out and we need to police the world. We need to build nations. We need to do all this other stuff. We need to intervene. I, for one, think we shouldn't. I think we should mind our own business. Uh, so in that regard, I'm much more kind of like a, a Ron Paul um, kind of philosophical follower, so to speak, with you know what we should be doing and what our place in the world should be. But a lot of the actions that our government is t- are, has taken, I don't think is is making the situation better. I don't think that we can honestly look at some of the things that have been done and say, okay, yeah, that's going to solve the problem. That's going to, to make things better. But anyway, uh, like, like I had said earlier, Chaz did a really good show, and I would recommend you go over and listen to that and, uh, and kind of take heed with, with some of the stuff that he said. You know, it is funny, like I also had mentioned a little bit earlier, a lot of times we sort of think along the same lines. And then with a guy like Chaz, he and I have a lot in uh, in common as far as we're you know roughly the same age. I think he said he's 44, I'm 49, so we're in sort of that same generation. We have definitely a very strong political, um, uh, kind of a philosophical beliefs that sort of run parallel. They don't, you know, they're not, uh, probably don't match up a hundred percent, but we both are kind of believe in the non-aggression, non-aggression theory and, and, uh, that, that we shouldn't be the police of the world and all this type of thing. We also have similar, uh, religious views probably didn't line up a hundred percent again, but so anyway, I guess the reason I'm saying some of this stuff is because a lot of what, like I said before, a lot of what he said I agreed with, and it, it doesn't really surprise me, considering that we, he and I have uh, have come to a lot of the the same conclusions. A lot of the things that he talks about, a lot of the things that I talk about, when you when you peel away kind of a lot of the the outer shell and you get down to the core, a lot of our core. Uh, philosophies or or beliefs are very very similar. I'm not going to say that they're same, and I don't want to necessarily speak for him or put words in his mouth. And um, kind of Travis is the same way too. And there's a lot of people out there that are that are like that. But anyway, I, I kind of wanted to to, uh, to throw that out there. And then I had a um, I was in the library the other day, and this is a little bit of a departure, uh, but it'll it'll maybe I'll be able to tie it in. Maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, I picked up a book, and it was called True Crime in American Anthology. And what it talks about in there is it talks about when this country sort of first started becoming colonized and about some of the crimes and what was going on at the time. And there was a story. Well, before I go into that, you know, a lot of times especially the, the, the anti-gun people say stuff like, well, you know, we didn't, if, if there weren't for guns, you wouldn't have a lot of the brutality. You wouldn't have a lot of the violence. And, and uh, you know, again, it's the gun's fault. It's not the people's fault. And there's a couple of stories in here that really illustrate that it, it's, it's the person that's doing it. It's not the thing that they use. It's not what they, what they did. There's one story that Benjamin Franklin wrote about. And he wrote it in the, I believe it was in the Philadelphia Examiner. And 
he, um, I'm trying to look at the date here real quick. If you'll bear with me just a moment or so. It looks like this was, this story appeared in the Pennsylvania Gazette on October 24th of 1734. Uh, so at that time, Franklin would have been, oh, I don't know, in his 20s, I guess. Um, maybe about 28, something like that. But anyway, I thought about maybe reading the story out, but I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it, and I may read, excuse me, I may read a few uh, quotes from the story. But there was a, a man whose first wife had died, and he had had a daughter with the first wife. He remarried. The daughter is now about 14 years old. They are sort of known to be heavy drinkers. And I think, and it's hard to tell because the, 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 the story is reprinted using the language of the time and, and the phrasing of the time, the syntax of the time. But it seems that maybe the girl had some, maybe some mental or physical disabilities and if you read into the story, it could be that maybe when the mother was alive, the girl was sort of taken care of. Once the father remarried, it doesn't go into how long, but it says that, and I'll kind of paraphrase some stuff here. It says that they were brought into court. And what they found was, is that they had the, the, uh, the man and the, the, the dad and the stepmom were on trial for the murder of the daughter. And again, I think I said she was about 14 years old. What they had done is they had kicked her out of the house and made her live outside. Uh, they didn't give her any uh, food or shelter when she would come and beg them for food. And it says, and I'll read this, uh, read this here. When she cried for bread, giving her into her mouth with an iron ladle her own excrements to eat. So they made her drink uh, her own urine and eat her own feces. So uh, they did a bunch of other stuff. They don't really go into what they did to her, but basically it was through neglect. And in the end, it says so that she languished and at length she died. At the trial, apparently there there was a lot of evidence against them saying, look, this is, you know, they, the, the parents treated the girl this way. That's what caused her death. And then they had a doctor who came in and testified, well, with this girl's ailments and with her maybe um, mental handicaps that she had, that she probably would have died about the same time that, that she did anyway. She probably really didn't have a whole lot of time to live. And the jury was convinced by this testimony of the doctor, and they came back with a verdict of manslaughter and not murder. The judge made a speech basically saying that the inward reflection of their own enormous crimes would be a more terrible and shocking, would be more terrible and shocking to them than any punishment that they were to undergo. And they talked about how they went against the, not only the laws of every nation on the planet, but against the laws of nature that, uh, you know, even the savage beast will care for its child and fight and die for it if necessary to try to protect it. They also, in the trial, blamed their drinking. They blamed the alcohol. Uh, and the sentence goes something like, but this is not the only instance in the present... Okay, let me start over again. But this is not the only instance the present age has afforded of the incomprehensible incivility 
dram drinking is capable of producing. So even back in Franklin's time, you see that there are people that are willing and able to look to blame something else other than the person. And their punishment was they were burned on the hand, which I don't exactly know what that means, and both of them were to undergo it. In the uh, transcripts, it says that the man asked if he could you know, have, have two burns on his hand, so I don't know what they did, uh, but they ended up given that punishment for him, and they did it in court, and that was the end of it. They didn't serve any time in jail or anything like that. There is also another story, and what's interesting is, you know, in, in today's world in the press, we see that, you know, they're, they're quick to say, oh, this is the person's name. They're quick to put all that stuff and parade it and go find out what the family wanted to say and the neighbors and all this other stuff, and everybody kind of gets a modicum of fame. And this took place in December in 1781. When they had printed the story, they have an account of a murder committed by Mr. J-Y-. Now, the guy's name was actually James Yates. But in most of the people involved in the story, they only give the first and and, uh, last initials of them. And sometimes they'll maybe give an ending initial so that you don't really know their names. They're doing stuff to sort of protect maybe the innocent uh, to, to, to do that. But, of course, we don't, we don't see that today. And like I said, I think the show is going to be relatively short today, and I'll end it with a reading of this, and, and the show will probably be right around like 30, 40 minutes or so. And this is a little bit longer reading. And, again, some of the language is from, is from the time when this was written. But I think it's a really good example of a couple of things. Number one, that if, if somebody is intent on doing something heinous and evil, and I know we throw that word around a lot, evil, and I mean, I don't know if we should. Maybe I should use the word despicable uh, or monstrous. But we see that it's kind of almost part of our human nature, I think, to look to blame something because we don't want to maybe ask that question of why. Why did this person do that? Because if we can get somewhat of a logical answer, we may say, well, no matter how remote the possibility, it may be that I could be capable of doing something like that or somebody that's close to me could be capable of doing something like that. But if we can blame it on something else, if we can shift the blame, there's sort of this false sense of security, a false sense of saying, well, this could never happen to me. Uh, So again, prepare yourself. If you've got a gun and if you can carry it, carry it, get your training, know what to do, get your mindset right to where that you don't become trapped in that thing of this, this isn't happening to me. Why is this happening? Why did I get chosen? Why me? You, You don't want those to be your thoughts. You want your thoughts to be, you know, where's cover? How do I get out of this? What do I need to do? Uh, and you need to have answers for those for those questions. Uh, so anyway, like I said, I'll go ahead and read this, and I may I may discuss a little bit more of it, but I'll probably go ahead and end the show. It's a it's, I got to warn you, it's a very it's a depressing story, uh, and it's almost like something that you would see, especially the first story I, that I kind of paraphrase, but this story as well is almost like something you would see in a horror movie or in a, a possession movie. 
Uh, and I think I, the, the second thing I wanted to talk about, because uh, I mentioned two things about how do you want to blame. Well, I, I think I guess I did. I'd talk about that because I talked about uh, that. And I'll save, I'll save some of that for the end of the story here. So this is an account of a murder committed by Mr. J.Y., which is Jamie Yates, upon his family, December A.D. 1781. And it says, The unfortunate subject of my present essay belonged to one of the most respectable families in this state. He resided a few miles from Tom Hannock, and though he was not in the most affluent circumstances, he maintained his family, which, is, which consisted of a wife and four children. He maintained them very comfortably. From the natural gentleness of his disposition, his industry, sobriety, propriety, and kindness, his neighbors universally esteemed him. And until the fatal night when he perpetrated the cruel act, none saw cause of blame in him. In the afternoon preceding that night, as it was Sunday and there was no church near, several of his neighbors with their wives came to his house for the purpose of reading the scripture and singing psalms. He received them cordially, and when they were going to return home in the evening, he pressed his sister and her husband, who came with the others, to stay longer. At his very earnest solicitation, they remained until near nine o'clock, during which time his conversation was grave as usual, but interesting and affectionate. To his wife, of whom he was very fond, he made use of more than commonly endearing expressions, and caressed his little ones alternately. He spoke much of his domestic felicity, and informed his sister that to render his wife more happy, he intended to take her to New Hampshire the next day. I have just been refitting my sleigh, said he, and we will set off by daybreak. After singing another hymn, Mr. and Mrs. J.F.N. departed. And this is an aside here. They are again protecting the, the family members by not giving their full name, which it could, have, it could be Jefferson. I don't know what it is. So we'll return to the text. They had no sooner left us, said he upon his examination, and he is uh, Mr. Yates here, James Yates. Then taking my wife upon my lap, I opened the Bible to read to her. My two boys were in bed, one five years old, the other seven. My daughter Rebecca, about eleven, was sitting by the fire, and my infant, aged about six months, was slumbering at her mother's bosom. Instantly a new light shone into the room, and upon looking up, I beheld two spirits, one at my right hand and the other at my left. He at the left bade me destroy all my idols, and began by casting the Bible into the fire. The other spirit dissuaded me, but I obeyed the first, and threw the book into the flames. My wife immediately snatched it out, and was going to expostulate, when I threw it in again, and held her fast until it was entirely consumed." Then, filled with a determination to persevere, I flew out of the house, and seizing an axe which lay by the door, with a few strokes, demolished my sleigh, and returned to the stable, killing one of my horses. The other I struck, but with one spring he got clear of the stable. My spirits were now high, and I hastened to the house to inform my wife of what I had done. She appeared terrified, and begged me to sit down, but the good angel whom I had obeyed stood by me and bade me to go on. You have more idols, said he. Look at your wife and children. I hesitated not a moment, but rushed to the bed where my boys lay, and catching the eldest in my arms, I threw him with such violence against the wall that he expired without a groan. His brother was still asleep. I took him by the feet and dashed his skull in pieces against the fireplace. 
Then looking round and perceiving that my wife and daughters were fled, I left the dead where they lay and went in pursuit of the living, taking up the axe again. A slight snow had fallen that evening, and, by its light, I described my wife running towards her father's, who lived about a half a mile off, encumbered with her babe. I ran after her, calling upon her to return, but she shrieked and fled faster. I therefore doubled my pace, and when I was within thirty yards of her, threw the axe at her, which hit her upon the hip. The moment that she felt the blow, she dropped the child, which I directly caught up and threw against a log fence. I did not hear it cry. I only heard the lamentations of my wife, of whom I had now lost sight, but the blood gushed so copiously from her wound that it formed a distinct path along the snow. We were now within sight of her father's house, but from what cause I cannot tell, she took an opposite course, and after running across an open field, she again stopped at her own door. I now came up with her. My heart bled to see her distress, and all my natural feelings began to revive. I forgot my duty. So powerfully did her moanings and pleadings affect me. Come then, my love, said I. We have one child left. Let us be thankful for that. What is done is right. We must not repine. Come, let me embrace me. Let me know that you do indeed love me. She encircled me in her trembling arms and pressed her quivering lips to my cheek. A voice behind me said, This is also an idol. I broke from her instantly and wrenching a stake from the garden fence with one stroke, I leveled her to the earth. Unless she should only be stunned and might perhaps recover again, I repeated my blows till I could not distinguish one feature of her face. I now went to look after my last treasure, but after calling several times without receiving any answer, I returned to the house again, and in the way back, picked up the babe and laid it on my wife's bosom. I then stood musing a minute during which interval I thought I heard the suppressed sobbings of someone near the barn. I approached it in silence and beheld my daughter, Rebecca, endeavoring to conceal herself among the haystacks. At the noise of my feet upon the dry corn stalks, she turned hastily around and seeing me exclaimed, O oh, father, my dear father, spare me. Let me live, let me live. I will be a comfort to you and my mother. Spare me to take care of my little sister, Diana. Do, do let me live. She was my darling child, and her fearful cries pierced me to the soul. The tears of natural pity fell as plentiful down my cheeks as those of terror did down her own, and methought that to, that to destroy all my idols was a hard task. I again relapsed at the voice of complaining, and taking her by the hand, led her to where her mother lay. Then thinking that if I intended to retain her, I must make some other severe sacrifice, I bade her sing and dance. She complied, terribly situated as she was, but I was not acting in the line of my duty. I was convinced of my error, and catching up a hatchet that stuck in a log, with one well-aimed stroke cleft her forehead in twain. She fell, and no sign of retaining life appeared. I then sat down on the threshold to consider what I had best do. I shall be called a murderer, said I. I shall be seized, imprisoned, executed, and for what? For destroying my idols? For obeying the mandate of my father? No, I will put all the dead in the house together, and after setting fire to it, run to my sisters and say the Indians have done it. I was preparing to drag my wife in, when the idea struck me that I was going to tell a horrible lie. And how will that accord with my profession? asked I. No, 
let me speak the truth and declare the good motive for my actions, and the consequences be what they may. His sister, who was the principal evidence against him, stated that she had scarce got home when a message came to Mr. J., her husband, informing him that his mother was ill and wished to see him. He accordingly set off immediately, and she, not expecting him home again till the next day, went to bed, there being no other person in the house. About four in the morning, she heard her brother, Yates, call her. She started up and bade him come in. I will not, returned he, for I have committed the unpardonable sin. I have burnt the Bible. She knew not what to think, but rising hastily opened the door, which was only lashed, and caught hold of his hand. Let me go, Nellie, said he. My hands are wet with blood, the blood of my Elizabeth and her children. She saw the blood dripping from his fingers, and hers chilled in the veins. Yet with a fortitude unparalleled, she begged him to enter, which, as he did, he attempted to seize a case knife, that by the light of a bright pine knot fire he perceived lying on the dresser. She prevented him, however, and tearing a trammel from the chimney, bound him with it to the bedpost, fastening his hands behind him. She then quitted the house in order to go to his, which, as she approached, she heard the voice of loud lamentation. The hope that it was some one of the family who had escaped the effects of her brother's frenzy subdued the fears natural to such a situation in time. She quickened her steps, and when she came to the place where Mrs. Yates lay, she perceived that the moans came from Mrs. Yates's aged father, who, expecting that his daughter would set out upon her journey by daybreak, had come that early hour to bid her farewell. They alarmed their nearest neighbors immediately, who proceeded to Mrs. J's, and there they found Mr. Yates in the situation. She had left him. They took him from hence to Tom Hannock, where he remained near two days, during which time uh, a Mr. W., a pious old Lutheran who occasionally acted as a preacher, attended upon him, exhorting him to pray and repent, but he received the admonitions with contempt and several times with ridicule, refusing to confess his error or join in prayer. I say join in prayer, for he would not kneel when the rest did, but when they arose he would prostrate himself and then address his father, frequently saying, My father, thou knowest that it was in obedience to thy commands, and for thy glory that I have done this deed. Mrs. B., at whose house he was then, bade someone ask him who his father was. He made no reply, but pushing away the person who stood between her and himself, darted at her a look of such indignation as thrilled horror to her heart. His speech was connected, and he told his tale about, well, excuse me, and he told his tale without variation. He expressed much sorrow for the loss of his dear family, but consoled himself with the idea of having performed his duty. He was taken to Albany, and there confined as a lunatic in the goal, from which he escaped twice, once by the assistance of Aquafortis, with which he opened the front door. And this is the author speaking here. I went in 1782 with a little girl by whom Mr. B. had sent him some fruit. He was then confined in the dungeon and had several chains on. He appeared to be much affected at her remembrance of him and put up a pious ejaculation for her and her family. Since then, I have received no accounts respecting him. The cause for his wonderfully cruel proceedings is beyond the comprehension of human beings. The deed so unpremeditated, so unprovoked, that we do not hesitate to pronounce it the effect of insanity. Yet, upon the other hand, when we reflect on the 
equanimity of his temper and the comfortable situation in which he was and no visible circumstance operating to render him frantic, we are apt to conclude that he was under a strong delusion of Satan. But what avail are conjectures? Perhaps it is best that some things are concealed from us, and the only use we can now make of our knowledge of this affair is to be humble under a scene of human frailty and renew our petition, lead us not into temptation. Dated May 27th, 1796, and this was published in New York Weekly Magazine. So again, you know, we see that there, you know, is this terrible crime, uh, a guy caught up uh, who clearly had maybe some mental problems, um, and for whatever reason, just sort of snapped. And again, for the, for the family, for them to ask them why it was going on, it didn't help them at all. It's a horrible crime. Like I said, it's something that could that you, that you would almost see in a like a horror movie where the father becomes possessed and kills off the whole family. But I thought was interesting at the end was they're saying that, you know, he was clearly insane, but it, it was almost like to the reader at the time that that insanity wasn't good enough. It wasn't a good enough explanation that they they turned to sort of a religious explanation and then, you know, and saying, well, he was actually deluded by the devil. And then they also turned to a thing where they said that, you know, we don't really know why this happened, but maybe it's best that we don't ask any questions. Maybe it's best that we don't ask why, why this happened and try and understand it maybe on a bigger picture. Maybe we should just kind of you know, trust that this won't happen again. We should trust in in uh, God or providence or whatever they would have called it back then. And we should just uh, hope that we're not tempted to do the same thing. So anyway, I guess maybe the point of this show is don't be afraid to ask why a thing is happening uh, or, or trying to understand the motivation for, for when something like those attacks happen. But also don't be afraid of, of the answer that you might get. Uh, maybe challenge yourself a little bit. Challenge your beliefs. Ask yourself, well, why do I believe certain things? Do I believe them because the media is saying so? Am I outraged because this? Am I, am I a, a upset about something or am I thinking a certain way because my peer group that I belong to, that's kind of the, the group think that we have. Uh, am I thinking for myself or am I, am I doing and saying things because I know it's sort of what's expected out of my group? Are you doing a thing where what you're saying is, well, perhaps it's best that some things are concealed from us. Um, there is a quote that I heard from on a, on a podcast that I listened to, and I think it was, I, I can't remember who said the quote, but I actually liked the quote. And the quote went something like that, well, something like this, excuse me. It's better to tell the truth than to lie. It's better to be free than to be a slave. And it is better to know than to be ignorant. All right, my friends, I hope you guys have a happy holidays and I will talk to you next time.